Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, blessings to everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Wishing God's blessing upon you this holiday season and uh, beyond. But tonight we're just going to continue with our normal Bible study without any particular reference to the season of the year. We're up to Psalm 69, so we're going to continue there. I'm not doing too well physically, uh, so please bear with me tonight. I'm not exactly, well, I'm not even mentally coherent to the best of circumstances, but this is a particularly problematic one. Uh, But we'll see how far we can get. Okay. Psalm 69. This is usually called the cry of distress, but it's also imprecatory, calling judgment on, on the enemies of David and of God. It's for the choir director, according to the Shoshanim, according to the roses, a psalm of David. Now, the Shoshanim is interesting. Jesus is called in, in Hebrew poetry, the Rose of Sharon, the Rose of Sharon. Um, and when you see the term Shoshanim or, or used in Hebrew poetry, there's usually some kind of a messianic connotation to it, okay? He's the Rose of Sharon. Like so many of these Psalms, it begins with David and David's particular ordeal during a very trying time. And it progresses with that, but it becomes metaphorical for the Messiah. Now, this particular Psalm is extremely important in the New Testament, extremely important in the New Testament. In fact, of all of the Messianic Psalms, it is arguable, well, I couldn't say the most important, but it would certainly be in the top three. It would certainly rank in the top three. Okay, let's look. Save me, O God, from the waters. The waters have threatened my life. I've sunk in deep mire, and there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. If you've ever experienced that, it's quite a treacherous experience. It happened to me once in the Mediterranean. I got caught in a rip current, and I did not at that time know how to swim out of a rip current. I've since learned how to do it, but then I learned the hard way, (laughs) swimming parallel to the beach and let the water carry you out until the rip was over, and then I I managed to get to a jetty by the grace of God, but I thought I was going to drown. The other time it happened to me was in Hawaii, and that was unbelievable, in Maui. That was unbelievable. Uh, Again, somebody only a few feet away could be standing on a sandbar, and and you're just drowning and being dragged. It's quite, it's happened to me twice, and it's very, very frightening. It's very, very frightening. I'm weary with my crying. Now, one of the things that happens when you're in that kind of a situation, like with a rip current, is you go into muscular fatigue, 
muscular fatigue and mental exhaustion very quickly, but the forces against you are relentless. It's not a good thing. Uh, of course, people who are Coast Guards and things like that are trained to swim in these conditions. But for the average person, it's not something you can easily do. And a lot of people drown this way. Okay. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail. I wait for my God. All he can do is wait. In a crisis situation, done everything you can do called upon the Lord, but all you can do is wait. You can do nothing. You can do nothing. Every true believer, every true believer in this fallen world who serves Jesus will reach a point or some points in their life as a believer where there's no point crying anymore, and you've been calling out to God, and there's nothing you can do. Nothing. All you can do is wait, wait. Now, remember, when that happens, God is usually slow, but he's never late. He's usually slow, but never late. God does not willingly afflict the sons of men. He lets us go through these terrible things to strengthen us because we're living in the enemy's kingdom. And we're here to prepare the way for his son's return and that's just the way it is in this fallen world. It's not something God takes delight in, but because of the fallen nature of man, because of our own fallen old nature, because of the battle we're in, it's something that he lets us go through. One of the reasons he lets us go through it is when we go through such experiences, as an older believer, we can become God's vehicles to understand and encourage younger believers going through the same thing. Younger believers going through the same thing. Okay. David continues, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. And those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, then I have to restore. What I... <laughs> They're holding him accountable for criminal acts, for things he did not do, and demanding he pay a price for something that he didn't do. I watched a film clip the other day. There were these most militant-looking homosexuals you can imagine. They were conspicuously perverted in their appearance. And they attacked some Christians who were obviously pro-same-sex traditional marriage, and they called them guilty of hate speech. And they said, no, we don't hate anybody. We, they grabbed their signs and smashed the sign, and this one brother had the sign ripped off the pole he was holding, and then they said, oh, you have a weapon. Now, such people are going to hell. We know this in Romans 1. It's almost impossible for people like that to get saved. Very few militant homosexuals, maybe none of them, will ever get saved based on Romans 1. These people are given over to hell. They're like the sons of Sodom. There's no, nothing you can do. It's usually futile trying to witness to them. You're casting your pearls before swine. You're looking at people who are given over to destruction. 
Well, that's just one example. It's going to become more and more like that before the Lord comes. You'll see this kind of intolerance with Islam and so forth. Your, your speech becomes violence. Their violence becomes free speech. <laughs> that's how sick it becomes. But then it goes on. They hate you without a cause. They want to destroy you. They're more powerful than you are. They're holding you accountable for crimes you never committed. But in verse 5, oh God, it is thou who dost know my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from me. David was aware of his own sin. No, we may not be guilty of the things that the fallen world accuses us of. We may be innocent of the lies told against us. We may not have done any of those things for which they're indicting us, incriminating us. But we still are aware of our own sin before God. Before him, we are still culpable and guilty. Remember, in Job and so forth, no man has a right to complain about anything because of their sin. Yeah, they may be lying against you and, and bringing false accusations and things like this, and that's wrong, and God will avenge it. But anything that happens to us, you know, we have sin. Now, the Lord atoned for that sin. For sure he did. But he still allows these things to happen to deal with our old nature. He's crucifying the old man and the old woman. We're picking up our cross. It goes on. Verse 6, may those who wait for thee not be ashamed. Through me, O Lord, God of my hosts, this is God of the armies, may those who seek thee not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Now it begins to become not only Davidic, but metaphoric of the Messiah, okay? With verse 6, the text becomes metaphorical of the Messiah. Because for thy sake, I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I've become estranged from my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Now, remember, it says that Jesus' own family didn't believe him. His own siblings at one point did not believe him. When other people don't believe you, it's one thing. When your own family, <laughs> that's something different. That's very different. Now, of course, hopefully this will not happen to the same extent or it may not happen at all if you're fortunate enough, blessed enough to come from a Christian family with committed Christian siblings. But you have unsaved relatives, unsaved siblings. They're still unsaved people. Don't expect unsafe people to be anything more than unsafe people, even if they're related to you. We love them. We pray for them. Desperately desire their salvation. But you'll find that's the way they'll treat you. Uh, you'll be dishonored. You become estranged from your brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. We read exactly that. You know, in the gospel concerning the Lord Jesus, exactly that. 
Uh, even his own brothers didn't believe him. But now we get into the heavy messianic prophecy. For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen on me. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of St. John, chapter 2. We always interpret the Hebrew Scriptures in light of the New Testament revelation of Jesus. And this is quoted in the Gospels at an early point in Jesus' ministry. Let's begin in verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Remember, you always go up to Jerusalem, no matter what direction you approach it from. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling their doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. The apostles then remembered and understood that this Psalm 69 was a messianic psalm. The Jews therefore answered and said, What sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? And of course, he makes his remarks about the temple. I don't want to digress. Now, this is at a very, very early point in his ministry. His ministry begins, of course, as public ministry at the wedding at Cana. Okay. Now, when we read the synoptics, we see after the baptism of John, he was tempted in the wilderness and so forth. But he is back home in Galilee, and he begins his ministry at the wedding at Cana. Okay. And after this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there he stayed a few days. So a few days after he begins his ministry, he heads south to Jerusalem, a pilgrim feast. This is his first major public appearance, his first major public appearance. Canaan was something local, maybe at the most regional. It was not something national or something international where the Pilgrim Jews from other countries coming for Passover would see it. <coughs> this is his first appearance on the main stage, as it were. And what does he do? He comes into conflict with the corruption in God's house, particularly the financial corruption. The first thing he does we cannot say he begins his ministry here. It's already been launched in Cana. 
But we can say it was manifested here. The nation saw who he was and what he was and what he believed and what he would do. He walks onto the grand stage for the first time, the first time ever. Other things have happened with John the Baptist in the wilderness and things like that, Galilee locally, but now he's in Jerusalem at a pilgrim feast. Everybody's there, Jews from every country imaginable in the Roman Empire, even as Phrygia and things like this, and they're all there. And he comes into conflict immediately. He becomes known as a troublemaker right from the onset, almost. Now, look, I've warned about people many times that you only know what they're for by what they're against. They're totally reactionary. Jesus does not do that. He begins proactively what he's for. He shows that in Cana. We changes the water to wine, the old creation to the new, the relationship between the two covenants and things of this nature. And we have teachings on, on John's gospel, what the symbolism of Cana really meant. Okay, he begins positive. But you can begin positive. But when you come into the conflict with the realities of a corrupt religious environment, you can do one of two things. You could ignore it, or you can do what Jesus did. Now, he already proacted. Now he's going to react. I have had people, even pastors, some in frankly, blithering ignorance of the word of God. Some in religious cowardice, trying to justify their own silence in the face of what they knew to be wrong in their movements and denominations. And they would say things like, we just need to teach the truth. God will deal with the error. Just ignore them. God will deal with the error. You just teach the truth. Let, let them deal with Well, Jesus was wrong. Why are you saying that? Are you saying that out of ignorance? Are you saying that because you disagree with Jesus? Or are you saying it because you're trying to preserve your own position and don't want the conflict because it'll disrupt your comfort zone and your own little religious charade? Jesus comes into immediate, immediate direct conflict. His national reputation in a high profile way becomes exposed in conflict with the corruption of God's house. People were merchandising. The word of God, the Paschal lamb, the sacrificial meats, they were, they were merchandising. It became a business and a racket. 
just look at this holiday season now. Look what's become of Christmas. <laughs> we could go on and on about it. Uh, again, Santa Claus and Father Christmas, as he's called in England, is nothing to do with the historical St. Nicholas from Ephesus. Nothing. Nothing. This fifth century guy was persecuted for his faith. Was known for his love of children and poor people and things. It has nothing to do with the real St. Nicholas. Nobody knows the year or the day Jesus was born. Why are you celebrating Jesus' birthday when you don't know when it is? When God wanted us to know a certain day, he put it in his word. He wanted us to know when Passover was. He wanted us to know the day of the resurrection, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He wanted us to know when Pentecost was. We know that this time of year, Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, on the 25th of the Hebrew month of Kislev in John chapter 10. When God wanted us to know a day for any kind of purposes theologically or for observance, he tells us. No place does he tell us to celebrate the birthday of Jesus. No place. They don't even know what it is. Now, if you're like me, you can observe the nativity. You can observe the birth of the Messiah, but not the birthday of the Messiah, it is two different things. If people really did things like the nativity and made charity and missions and things like this, that's not what happens, is it? It's just a racket. The whole thing is a racket. Well, in other words, it was not only the Jews who did this. Not only the Jews who did this. Christmas, of course, comes from the 25th of Saturnalia, pagan Roman feast. We don't want to go into this. We've mentioned it before, and there's no need to mention it again. Well, if the world does it, the world does it. They want to have Frosty the Snowman. I don't care about that. But when you associate this stuff with the nativity and you eclipse the meaning of the nativity with this other stuff we got a problem okay it just became an excuse to make money now What's happened in the church with the merchandising of the gospel? We know with the word faith money preachers and these terrible things that have gone on and have discredited the real message of Jesus and diverted so many billions, billions of dollars away from missions and evangelism. You know, these things. As soon as Jesus arrives on the scene in a high-profile way, in no uncertain terms, he confronts these things head on and aggressively. 
he shook the whole boat. That's how he first makes his public reputation. That's what he becomes known as, a troubler of Israel. That's what was happening to King David. That's what happened to Elijah. That's what happened to the Hebrew prophets. That's what happened to Jesus. And those who follow Jesus are going to understand this. The conflict is inevitable. Now, the conflict with the pagan Romans, that's one thing. But the conflict within the corruption of God's own people, I'll tell you, I'm as disturbed as anybody having a grandchild with growing up with same sex and marriage and education and teaching this to children that you, uh, with taxpayer money, you've got to discover what your sexual orientation is when you're six and you, you, your parents have to pay taxes to finance and they have no say in it. And if you object, they want the FBI to investigate you and put you on a terrorist watch list. That's how evil it's become. That's how evil the American government has become. The present administration, certainly, how demonically evil it is. Again, these people are given to hell. Those who give party approvals of what they do, they're, they're given to hell. But, okay, you've got the same-sex thing. That does not bother me nearly as much as Rick Warren's accommodation of it, as Tony Campolo's accommodation of it, as Steve Chalk's approval of it. That, that bothers me far worse than what the world does. Far worse. Far worse. We live in a world of financial corruption. We have a corrupt banking system, a corrupt treasury, a corrupt federal reserve system, a corrupt European central bank. It is all corrupt, all corrupt. When people are lying, you know, we have to have this $3 trillion thing. Where are you gonna get the money? <laughs> they're going to print it and they're going to milk it out of the middle class and when they print it they're going to cause inflation and people are going to pay more and more and get less and less for it but they talk about it as if it's a right well this kind of irresponsible madness well that's the world Banksters lie. Politicians lie. Let them lie. I expect them to lie. <clears throat> but when financial corruption gets in the church, when preachers lie, when it becomes a racket, no, no. No. I don't like Powers or Janice Yeltsin. I don't like the Fed. 
I don't like any of these things. I don't like it. Okay. You may disagree. It's up to you. I'm not going to hold it against you. I don't care. But when I see people lying in the church and they're doing it for their own aggrandizement, well, right now, Jesus is overturning the tables. He's driving these people out of the temple. The financial collapse of so many ministries and churches. God is using COVID. God is using these things. They may be bad things, but he's using them in judgment. Let us see the hand of God in these things. The Lord is angry at the state of the church. The Lord is very angry at the state of the church. I think in the United States, of the biggest academic institution in the United States, if not the Western world, it calls itself evangelical. Liberty University. Now, let's just look at this. It went back to Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell was a fundamentalist preacher who was against the gifts of the spirit, charismatic gifts and things like this. And he came from a segregationist background from which he said he repented. Whether he repented or was forced to change because of the civil rights movement is another issue. I don't know. I just know that was his background. And he got caught in some dodgy financial things. He was raising money for a famine in Africa on TV, asking people to send money. And the State Department published a statement of the American organizations involved in fighting this famine. And his church and his ministry was not even on it. He mobilized born-again Christians to support Ronald Reagan, who claimed was pro-life. Well, once Ronald Reagan became president, one of the first things he did was appoint a pro-abortion judge to the Supreme Court. Ronald Reagan out and out lied to Christian America. Out and out lied. Appointed Sandra Day O'Connor. It was her who wrote the Supreme Court's decision to remove the Ten Commandments from the Judicial Building in Alabama. This was Sandra Day O'Connor, appointed by Ronald Reagan. Jerry Falwell said not a word. We know what happened. Ronald Reagan, as he got older, and we, he may have had incipient senility now, it seems, but he would say things that were like a bit like Biden, only not to the same extreme. It's well known that trees cause 85% of pollution. He actually said that in a speech. His wife would stand in back of him and kind of try to keep him in check. But his wife was going to Gene Dixon and to astrologists 
there was astrology, astrologers in the White House and fortune tellers advising her how to advise her husband to run the country. This openly demonic witchcraft, things that are openly satanic, that became publicly known. Couldn't be denied. Yet, Jerry Falwell said not a word. Jesus said there would be false Christ. Sun Young Moon wrote the divine principle, claiming to be the Lord of the second advent to return to Jesus Christ. That's what he said he was. This is a real antichrist. He said, Jesus failed in his mission. He came to succeed where Jesus failed. And he was in this mind control cult that was about getting people to work 18 hours a day to give them money. He eventually wound up in federal prison. But when he got out, well, anyway, this is a literal antichrist, a known antichrist. In his book, he, he, there'd be nothing else you can say except this man's an antichrist. Billy Graham, live at the time, denounced him on television. Well, Jerry Falwell brought him into Liberty University to just the students and called him an unsung hero. And he wrote a check for a couple of million. Jerry Falwell's only God seemed to have been money. He actually brought in an antichrist. I'm not talking about the sex scandals following his son. But Liberty University expanded and expanded and expanded financially and became huge and huge and got richer and richer. They brought in, not long ago, not too long ago, Stephen Furtick. If you Google it, there's a video on the internet with Stephen Furtick saying, I am God Almighty. And then he repeats it, I am God Almighty. They had that guy at liberty. You think the university would have issued a statement saying we, because they were too busy with their own financial corruption and lawsuits with Falwell's son. And the whole thing is a disgrace, a shame and a disgrace that cannot be defended. But the secular media gets a hold of it. Christianity gets discredited. But if you spoke out against Falwell or about liberty, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> How dare you? You're shaking Applehood. You're disturbing the gravy train. They didn't care about an open antichrists. They had two antichrists. <coughs> <coughs> self-admitted antichrists at Liberty University. Yet, this was the premier academic institution of American evangelicism.
He drives them out. Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Why would you let in Moon and call a man who says he's the return of Jesus Christ an unsung hero, a convicted felon? Money. Money. Well, that was the state of Judaism when Jesus began his ministry. And that is the state of Christianity today. But let's continue. When you say this, people get very angry. Not, nobody can deny the factual substance of what you say. They just engage in a rather hypocritical blend of religious cowardice and self-righteous religiosity. We shouldn't judge. We shouldn't criticize. We should just love and teach the truth, and the Lord will handle the error. Yeah. If the church addressed these issues, the secular media never would have gotten a hold of it. The gospel wouldn't have been discredited. The lawsuits wouldn't be flying. But then it goes on. Psalm 69, verse 10. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Talking about David again, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword for them. Again, garments of repentance. Those who sit in the gate, that's the eldership of a village or town. Those who sit in the gate talk about me. And I am the song of drunkards. Just my people singing songs, dr drunken people singing songs, satirizing you. That happened to David. And it happened to Jesus. It just became the subject, the theme of satirical music sung by drunks. But as for me, my prayer is to thee, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the greatness of thy loving kindness, answer me with thy saving truth. He's still holding on. God's going to do something. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes. <clears throat> And from the deep waters, reverting back to verse 1. May the flood of water not overflow me. And may the deep not swallow me up. And may the pit not shut its mouth on me. The pit is going to shut its mouth on many people. But the trials that David's going through. <clears throat> 
Again, think of a person on the sandbar, and the sandbar disappears with a rip current. There's no footing. There's no... <laughs> just being pulled out. This could have been the thicket of the Jordan. Could be something torrential of that nature. Or wadis become flood zones. May the flood water not overflow me. May the deep not swallow me up. Answer me, O God, in verse 16, for thy loving kindness is good according to the greatness of thy compassion turned to me. Do not hide thy face from thy servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Man, when you're under that kind of pressure and that kind of distress, come on, Lord, come on, Lord. When are you going to do something? When are you going to answer? We want him to do something, but because of our own circumstances, we want him to do it quick. <laughs> that was David. But of course, Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Now let's look. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. This is David. Thou dost know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. Jesus had the reproach of men and shame and dishonor, but not because of his sin. David had those things because of his sin. You and I have those things because of our sin. All my adversaries are before thee. Verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart. I'm so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Boy. Even his apostles abandoned him. Except for John, apparently. The Apostle Peter followed at a distance. The others got lost. He looked for somebody. Can you imagine his mother, his mother having to watch him suffer like this? Again, I get so upset about the Roman Catholic lie of Mary and what they do with her and the hyperdulia and the idolatry, necromancy, etc. But I don't want to downplay the prophecies of Simeon at his birth, that a sword would pierce her own heart. We have to recognize what the scripture says about Mary. It's not, it's not enough to realize that the Roman church says things about Mary that God doesn't. But we have to recognize what the scripture does say about Mary. And the anguish she had to watch her son was in fulfillment of the prophecy, of course, of Simeon. But now look at verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And then it uses a kind of a paschal imagery. May their table before them become a snare. And when they are in peace, may it become a trap 
the Passover table. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out thine indignation on them and may thy burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents for they have persecuted him whom now thyself has smitten and tell of the pain of those whom thou has wounded. Do add iniquity to their iniquity that they may come, that they may not come into thy righteousness. In other words, it's not praying for their salvation or repentance. May they be blotted out of the book of life. When you pray for somebody's salvation, you pray it will be <coughs> written in there. Remember, <coughs> when Jesus was on the cross, all of the anger and wrath of God was focused on him for the sake of the elect. And I don't mean elect in the Calvinistic sense. For the sake of those who would repent and believe, the wrath of God was focused only on Jesus. <coughs> but that's not to say his anger was not pent up against his persecutors, against the Sanhedrin, against the religious establishment, against the Herodians and the Roman authorities. It's not to say that God's anger was not there. It's just to say God was delaying dealing with them pouring his wrath on his son in our place. The only reason that the pit does not cover us up is because that wrath, of course, was poured out on him in our place. But let's realize, yet Jesus prayed, Father, forgive. God does not blame anybody for the death of Jesus except for three people. God does not blame the death of Jesus on anybody except for three people. The first is himself. It was the will of the Lord to slay him. Jesus said, I lay my life down, no one takes it from me. God takes the blame for the death of Jesus. Second, obviously, is Satan. Satan is culpable for what happened to Jesus. It was crucified, would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And third, the son of perdition, Judas, type of the Antichrist. God does not blame anyone else for what happened to Jesus, except for those three. However, 
after he's vindicated by the resurrection? Now, everyone is guilty for rejecting him. Rejection is condemnation. Notice how much this psalm speaks, not just of the suffering of Jesus or, the, or David, the figure of Jesus, but of the rejection. Verse 8, I become estranged, you know. The, the, I'm in distress, you know, the, the unbelievable rejection. Look for friends, found none. Look for comforters, he found none. He was rejected on top of all the other things. Now look what it says. May the camp be desolate in verse 25. Well, that alludes to the prophecies of 70 AD, of course, and what would happen, okay? But in verse 26, thou hast persecuted him whom now thyself has smitten. They've persecuted him whom now whom thou thyself has smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom thou has wounded. They're persecuting the one whom God has smitten. Look with me to Isaiah 53, please. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death. Oh, my Lord. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. It was the will of the Lord to smite him. Unbelievable. However, he will see his offspring, who will prolong his days. When David is rescued from those waters, it is a picture of God's deliverance. Okay. Yes, Jesus suffered according to the will of the Father. The wrath of God was poured out on him and our place. This very much is true. But let's understand something else. For those who do not repent and believe in him, God is going to hold them accountable as his murderers. And those who persecute the church, the church is the body of Christ. Those who persecute the faithful church and always have, it doesn't matter the Nazis or the, the communists or the Islam or the Roman church, it doesn't matter what it is. Those who persecute the true church are counted in God's sight as the murderers of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. God looks upon them as murderers. 
and their destruction is sought. Remember, Revelation 5, the blood of the martyrs is calling out for vengeance. I think of these politicians wanting to abort the babies right up into 40 weeks gestation. What is what happened to Ginsburg the second she was dead? What's going to happen to Diane Feinstein? They want to abort a baby right up to the time of birth. Lord, let your judgment come. We're told they persecuted him without his smitten in verse 26, and they tell of the pain of those whom thou has wounded. Notice the Lord has wounded him. It was the will of the Lord to pierce him. Do thou add iniquity to their iniquity? May they not come to thy righteousness. It's not praying for their salvation, it's praying for their destruction. May they be blotted out. Oh, Lord, please save these people and repent of them. There may be individuals by God's grace, may be individuals by God's grace, who persecute Christians, who become Christians. St. Paul was one of those. Thank God for those who do. I know people say that of homosexuality, out of drug addiction, out of crime, out of everything. Thank God for those who do come to faith in Jesus. But the rest of them, when they begin to persecute believers, when you begin to persecute the true church, you are crucifying Christ. And the Father says, not again. The first time I let you get away with it in the hope you'd repent because my son was paying for your sin. This time, you're not getting away with it. And of course, this uses the persecutors of David as metaphors of such people. Now, I'm afflicted in pain. May the God of my salvation set me securely on high. I will praise the name of God with song and shall magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. What this is talking about is comparing the sacrifice of Christ and the salvation of Christ to the selling of the bulls and of the oxen and things like that in John 2.17. God's got something much better than the animal sacrifices. It says in Hebrews, we have a better covenant. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy. He does not despise. 
his who are prisoners. Oh, they're being persecuted. Christians are going to be persecuted before the Lord comes. They're being persecuted now. But God is angry at their persecutors. Oh, Father, forgive. Yeah. Forgive the ones who repent. But there's no collective forgiveness. You see, on the cross, Jesus could issue a general pardon to everybody. They know not what they do because it was the will of the Lord to smite him, because he laid his life down, God was able to issue a general get-out-of-jail-free get card to everybody at that one time. But not again. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. This alludes to the millennial reign of Christ. And the descendants of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell in it. Now let's go back to verse 21. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And then mix this with sour wine and things like this. Let's look. Remember, this is Passover time. Turn with me, please, first of all, to the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 27, verse 34 and 48. Matthew, chapter 27. They gave him wine to drink, mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Notice he was unwilling to drink it. Verse 48. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine. And he put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Okay. Now, that's Matthew. Let's look now at Mark. Mark chapter 15, verses 23 and 36. Mark chapter 15, verses 23 and 36. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Notice again, it's something that he rejects, okay? In verse 36, and someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. Let's see whether Elijah will calm down. This just repeats what was in Matthew. But again, he refuses to drink it. Okay. Pay attention, please. Let's look at Luke, chapter 25. I'm sorry, Luke, chapter 23, verse 36. 
verse 36, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine. Now notice he was offered the wine when they gambled for his clothes before they nailed him to the cross. Then he was offered it again on the cross and again on the cross. But the first time he was not yet nailed to the cross. Turn with me, please, to John 19. Verse 28, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Now he wants to drink something. Now, of course, he's thirsty for justice. We know from the Sermon on the Mount, hunger and thirst for righteousness sake it means that. But he's thirsty. A jar filled with sour wine was standing there, and they put a sponge on it. And the sponge was filled with sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it to him. And when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now in Psalm 51, what does David say in his penitential psalm? Purge me with hyssop. In the Passover, the blood on the lentils and doorposts was applied with Hyssop. Hyssop has a purifying quality to it. It's related to mint. It's related to mint. It's used in the Middle East for thousands of years. Notice the hyssop. But this time he's thirsty. And they brought it up to his mouth. And he received the sour wine and said, it's finished. Up until now, no, 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 no. Before they nailed him to the cross, no. On the cross, no, no. Want some? No, no. And he says, I want some. With his up, they give it to him. And he received it. He drank it. And at that point, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it is finished in Greek is tetelestai, a legal financial term. Paid in full. Paid in full. First time, no. Second time, no. Third time, no, no, no. Then he says, I want to drink. He drinks 
the final time and says, it is finished. Now you have to understand, I know it's Christmas time, whatever, this is a more of a, I don't even like to use the terms Easter and Christmas. It's more of a Paschal thing than a nativity thing. But remember, it's the Paschal cups, the four cups. At the Last Supper, Judas could not drink the last cup. The last cup is the cup of Hallel, also known as the cup of acceptance. The cup of acceptance. Judas walks out of the Paschal Seder, the Last Supper, before he drinks that cup. Okay, He's not accepted. He leaves before that. You have to finish the fourth cup for it to be finished, to be accepted. Jesus would not take the cup of Kiddush. He could not take the cup of acceptance yet. He could not take the cup of blessing. No, 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 no. He could not take the cup of redemption. No. But the fourth cup, he takes the fourth cup and only the fourth time he drinks acceptance. When you drink the fourth cup, it means the Passover is complete. It is finished. He fulfilled the Torah perfectly. Couldn't have the other ones. He couldn't have the cup of blessing. He couldn't have, you know, have the cup of deliverance. He couldn't have those other cups. No, 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 no. He wouldn't drink, wouldn't drink it. But the final one, the one that Judas walked out and didn't get, he said, I want to drink. I'm thirsty. Drinks it. After he drinks it, he says, it is finished. Gives up the ghost and dies. Perfect. Perfect. He can only drink the final cup. He had to turn down all the other cups. Judas drank all the other cups. He wanted the blessing and the, the, the deliverance. But Judas didn't get the cup of acceptance. Jesus got the Hallel, the cup of praise, also known as the cup of acceptance. The Father accepted his sacrifice perfectly only when he had completely atoned for our sin. He drank the final cup and he said, that's it, it's finished. And he gave up the ghost. This is one of the most important messianic Psalms 
in the book of Psalms. Unfortunately, there are probably few Christians who understand it. Well, they may know that it's a prophecy about the Messiah. They offered me gold to drink, and they might know that. But they don't understand. No, the first time they offered, he says no. Next time, no. Third time, no. Only the fourth one. And so we did it. Once that happens, now we have to remember, God loves Israel and the Jews. But those who reject their Messiah, he rejects them. God loves the Gentile nations. But those who reject the Messiah, God rejects them. <clears throat> the first time Jesus, Jesus died, because it was the will of the Lord to slay him, because it was the will of the Lord to bruise him, because he laid his life down, Father, forgive. They don't know what they're doing. This is the foreplan of God. Everybody gets a pass for his death. Not for his rejection. But then when the persecution comes, just like the persecutors of David, the persecutors of the body of Christ are coming into the wrath of God. They'll become more aggressive, more militant, more hateful to Christians. You see these militants, Muslims and militant homosexual gangs and all these people coming against Christians and it's going to get worse. We know what God's going to do to them. we get to a Revelation 6 scenario. It's no longer praying for their salvation. It's praying for their doom. Now, when that happens, God will turn his grace back to Israel. In a sense, grace. He'll intervene on behalf of Israel once the church is removed. The faithful church is removed. But he's angry. When God sees faithful Christians being persecuted, people like I've met in, in, in Vietnam, when God sees faithful Christians being persecuted for being Christians, what he sees are people persecuting his son. When God sees these hate Christ movements on campuses, and you can have homosexual and lesbian student associations and transgender, but you can't have a Christian one. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
God is very angry. These people are given over. Imagine actually praying that someone's name would be blotted out of the book. Not written in. There's little time left. I pray that the Lord will show mercy to these people and these hate Christ religions and movements. But they don't realize is they're causing God to hate them. They're causing God to hate them. When God hates you, you got a big problem. But when God loves you, your problems are over. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.